Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. You're tuning in through iTunes or Spotify. We come through on both of those platforms. And also, if you're watching on YouTube, please do not forget to click the subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications. Otherwise, you might not get new content when I post it. Just a quick episode today. Not going to uh, spend a whole lot of time here. I do have another episode in the pipeline that's outlined and ready to go on um, uh, on the inheritance as it's related to the covenant. And that will hopefully be, uh, I think, interesting. I don't know if I'll get that out this week or the following week, depending on uh, my schedule. We'll, we'll see. But uh, I, w- I just wanted to make a quick episode on hermeneutics because I'm thinking about uh, the proper way uh, to approach Scripture. And um, I guess a couple years ago, it occurred to me, maybe more than a couple years ago, a few years ago, it occurred to me that I, I think by and large, seminaries um, and and many pastors as a result of, of what the seminaries teach have basically adopted, or at least adopted or, or have have kind of synthesized with a liberal uh, hermeneutical strategy, hermeneutical method. Um, and uh, it, it's taken me some some time to put my finger on exactly where this synthesis is occurring in, you know, hermeneutical methodology. And, and by the way, hermeneutics is just the art and science of interpreting text, and in this case, of course, the, the text of Holy Scripture. Um, and, 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 and so, you know, I, I, I knew that those who harped on the historical grammatical method as the only way in which we are to approach the text were kind of stressing that method, uh, or, or, or rather that angle of biblical interpretation or that ingredient, we might say, of biblical interpretation, maybe a little bit too much, maybe so much so that the Bible itself can't, you know, fit in that in that mold. Uh, it, it cannot be consistently applied throughout the text and things like that. But it's taken me a little while uh, to to really put that together in terms of of the broader significance of that. So I think what's actually happening is. Not only is there's a is there a a an historicism we might say uh, a a a, a, a an, an historical grammatical onlyism uh, to put it you know in a different way, um, but that his but the way in which that historical grammatical approach is often defined is I think the problem, and no one denies that you know the first principles of interpreting holy scripture is obviously going to be the grammar and uh literary mode and and things of that nature right so so nobody you know on either side of the cast is going to deny uh that um where the difference comes is in terms of of determining or discerning the meaning communicated by those grammatical and literary terms. Um, so uh, some would say, and and those who hold to to a stringent historical grammatical methodology, that by that they mean that they must try and decipher the intentionality uh, of the original human author. In other words, Authorial intent for them is the intent that the human author had in writing what he wrote, and it's also paired with that usually is 
is something like it's also the the way in which the audience of that time, the audience uh, to whom that author was directly, uh, you know, writing that letter or um, that ode or elegy in the case of Lamentations, for example, would have understood it, right? And and that is that is really where meaning is confined to. And and what I want to do here, and and this will again, this will be quick. Uh, it'll it'll be um, hopefully not too drawn out. Is I want to say that that particular way of defining the historical grammatical method is a th- a synthesis between I I think the the conservative fundamentalism of you know the early 1900s late 1800s with the uh, with the higher critics from Europe um, and the, their historical critical methodologies. And the reason I say that is because the definition of the historical critical method is basically the same, at least, again, in terms of methodology, it's the same as how the modern uh, understanding of the historical grammatical method is often defined. So, for example, this is a definition of the historical critical method from the historical critical method, a guide for the perplexed by David R. Law. And, 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 and that book claims that the historical critical method has an aim, which is to get as close to the original text and its original meaning as possible. And of course, by that, it means the, the authorial intent um, as it's defined by the human author. Um, and that's, you know, relatively removed from any kind of divine influence or the doctrine of inspiration or anything like that. And when you read the the modern definition of the grammatical historical or the historical grammatical method, you get the same definition that really the 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 goal is to get as close to the original intent of the human author and the level of understanding of the original audience as much as possible. And that that's the part that I'm claiming in this video is a carryover from the historical critical method, which is conceived by uh, higher criticism, European, specifically German higher criticism. Um, now, here is a conservative uh Bible scholar, a a professor at the Master's Seminary, who defines the historical grammatical or the grammatical historical, or what he calls it, the historical grammatical literary method, in like terms to the historical critical method that we've just seen defined by David R. Law. And this particular author says, this approach seeks to understand what a Bible author meant. By that, he doesn't mean God. He means the human author. This approach seeks to understand what a Bible author meant by what he wrote, knowing that under inspiration, his intent is God's intent. Um, and so inspiration is kind of the only factor that's kind of, it, that's the synthesis, right? Uh, that, that basically what he's done is he's taken a definition from the historical critical theologians, um, and he has tagged inspiration onto it, kind of like a footnote. That comes from uh, Dr. Michael J. Vlatch at the Master Seminary. Dr. Craig Carter uh, defines, you know, what he knows of the historical grammatical method um, 
which he had experience with in in his seminary career. Um, and he says that it consists of what the original author meant to convey to the original readers in the original situation. And he goes on to add, this is why the seminary had taught me Hebrew, Greek, ancient history, and critical methods like form criticism and source criticism, so that as a pastor, I would be equipped to do what lay people for the most part could not do, namely recover the historical meaning of the biblical text. Okay, so Vlach's take and the take of those professors that Dr. Craig Carter sat under during his, you know, academic career um, is basically saying that you, you have to know the world of the text in order to decipher the meaning of the text. Uh, you know, at bare minimum, that's functionally the implication there. And the first citation from Michael Vlach is from his volume, He Will Reign Forever. The second citation from Craig Carter is out of his book, The Introduction to Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition. Um, now, what I want to do is is I want to say that since that is is really not a definition found prior to the advent of the historical critical method with, you know, higher criticism and all of that coming out of European schools, um, that we should probably rethink our assumption that that definition of the grammatical historical method is really what we should be trying to run with. Um, if you look at someone who's a conservative Bible scholar who believes in the inspiration and the inerrancy of Holy Scripture, uh, who functions on the presupposition of that kind of grammatical historical method as it was defined by Dr. Vlach and, and Craig, um, uh, Craig Carter, uh, what usually happens is you can discern in their work how they're not consistent with that axiomatic approach. Um, and so they'll say, well, you have to, you have to, you know, understand, for example, promises in the Bible according to how the recipient of the promise at the time would have understood it or interpreted it. And usually what you get is you get, um, you know, later on those same Bible scholars in a biblical theology or whatever will, you know, say that this promise is fulfilled in something that's actually wildly beyond what those original, uh, you know, recipients of the promise, like Abraham or someone like Moses, would have interpreted them to be, simply because of their limited understanding. And so, uh, there, there's not, there's not a consistent way to hold to, I don't think that particular axiom at the outset, you know, as it's defined rather at the outset of one's approach to to scripture because you always have to rightly so adjust your understanding as a bible interpreter to the progressive revelation of scripture and how that actually realistically plays out in the text of holy scripture and the reality is is that when you get to the new testament you're dealing with a level a plane and expansion that perhaps someone in the Pentateuch was promised, right? Uh, and 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 indeed it was revealed to them through types and shadows, but they themselves would not have understood the the magnitude or the transcendence of what is actually what has actually come to fruition in the New Testament. And so you have to adjust for the flow of Scripture itself and the way in which Scripture 
determines a prophecy is fulfilled or, or the way in which it, you know, the text of Scripture declares prophecy is fulfilled. And, and so those Bible scholars, I think rightly so, adjust to that flow, but then they're inconsistent with their own, <clears throat> uh, you know, stated presuppositions that they've gone into their interpretive endeavor with, uh, namely the grammatical historical method as it's defined uh, by uh, many today. And, and that definition we've, we've already covered at some length. Now, what I want to do is I want to say that there's an alternative to this, that, again, I want to reaffirm the importance of the historical sense, the literal sense, um, and the, uh, the first principles that we have to employ if we're going to interpret the text and know what the text says at all. You know, the rules of grammar, the rules of language, and things of that nature, the laws of logic most fundamentally assuming those things as we come to the text. So, you know, we're all agreeing there. The problem, as I've mentioned earlier, comes when you define the grammatical historical approach as, you know, functionally a historical critical method. Um, and and that's, that's what I have trouble with. And instead of that, I think what we can do is we can adopt a different method, which I think is more biblical and it's more organically derived from the text itself. Um, and, and that method would be uh, the... Um, the discernment of the Bible reader, not of the human author's intent per se, although if, if that's made known, we should of course take that into consideration and that can be helpful, but rather our concern should be the divine, divine intent as we consider the scripture as a whole, because the scripture, even though it's 66 distinct books, it has come together as a result of divine providence, special providence, and it, it exists as a, as a single volume that God himself has authored primarily, okay? And so the important thing to discern is God's intent, and I think God's intent, contrary to the human intent, which isn't always discernible at all, um, it, it, God's intent is discernible because he's you know, commented on some texts in other texts. So scripture is really the only infallible Bible commentator that we have because that's God, basically how the text, you know, uh, you know, mutually informs uh, its parts uh, by other clearer parts, you know, tells us that God is commenting on his own word. God is expounding upon his own word and he is actually revealing to us in the pages of scripture his intent. So that ought to be the predominant focus, I think, of the Bible reader. It also eliminates the requirement or the need for lay people to go and do, you know, extensive historical research using, uh, you know, secondary or tertiary source material um, in order to figure out the world of the text, when really scripture is a self-contained volumized set of inspired books that comment on one another and comment on one another in an authoritative fashion. And here's one more thing before we close out here. When you say we have to determine the authorial intent of the human author and the way the human audience of that author's work has or would have understood it, what you're, what you're introducing into the equation here is a need to uh, to speculate upon human psychology. You're essentially saying that the, the psychology um, of the human author has to be, in some sense, 
understood in detail. And you have to try and climb into the mind of the human author, or you have to try to climb into the minds of the human audience. And that's just a task that I do not think you know is is a burden on every single Christian in their private Bible reading. I you know that's that's not that's not a task that 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 Bible readers are bound to. And indeed, there's no place in Scripture that you know def- that gives us the historical critical method and then defines it like that, right? That we have to know what the human authorial intent is. There's nowhere in Scripture that actually. Uh, requires us to play by that particular rule. And of course, you know, grammar and language are not defined by Scripture. They're, they're affirmed uh, or they're assumed by Scripture, the rules of grammar, uh, the, the laws of logic and things like that. So I'm not asking for a definition in Scripture of the first principles we have to assume to even come to Scripture. Rather, what I'm saying is that the, the way that the grammatical historical method is often defined it is not in terms of first principles. There's actually an assumption or a philosophy of interpretation smuggled into that definition, which goes beyond a mere first principle and and assumes or makes the reader assume that really they're to be interpreting this text uh, like they would any other text, although keeping in mind that this is a special text because God has, has, has inspired it. And they kind of use inspiration as the distinguishing mark between themselves and the historical critical uh, uh, proponents. Um, But that's not a good enough uh, distinguishing factor when your method is all historical critical and you just kind of tag into the definition. Yeah, but it's inspired. So we know that, you know, it's definitely true. Um, You know, the methodology itself is actually just an adoption of the historical critical method from the critical, you know, the higher critics. Um, of the late 19th and, and early 20th centuries. Um, and so what I, would, what I would just like to encourage here is, is a return to more of a classic way of approaching Scripture, um, assuming first principles, of course, laws of logic, grammar, language, applicability, meaning of terms, and all that. Um, but also understanding that Scripture itself, once we get into it and bring those first principles with us, those presuppositions, that Scripture itself actually gives us a great deal to add to our hermeneutical toolbox. That that we can that we can you know without knowing necessarily the world of Haggai uh, in, in any sort of extensive extra biblical manner. Although that can help be helpful, but it's not necessary for determining the meaning of Haggai, for example, or Nahum, or Jeremiah, or Lamentations. Again, the historical you know, information surrounding the authorship of the text can be interesting, it can be illuminating to some extent, but it's not essential for deriving meaning from the text, which means it's not essential for one to know the authority, the human authorial intent and the understanding level of the human audience to which it was written immediately in order to decipher the meaning of the text. We need to know what God's intent is, and God has given us his intent in other parts of Scripture that comment on the question on the parts that are in question. So anyway, hopefully that was helpful. We're right at 20 minutes. God bless you guys. If you haven't already, please uh, click subscribe uh, to this YouTube channel, the bell for continued notifications. Give me a thumbs up if you liked it, thumbs down if not. And check out my Substack newsletter, joshsummer.substack.com, as well as the website, thebaptistbroadcast.com. God bless.